This is Inside Marketing, brought to you by Dentsu Aegis Network and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to Inside Marketing. Um, we've covered lots of topics and we've spoken to lots of people over the last, I don't know, 50, 40 odd episodes. But I'm conscious and I realize that it has been largely one-sided perspective. So most of the people on have been agency or media owner side. And it's rare that I get to speak to somebody from the client side and get their perspective. But all that is about to change right now because today I'm delighted to be joined by Jerry Dakin, who is Senior Media Director, EMEA for GSK Consumer Healthcare Marketing. Welcome, Jerry. Thanks for having me on board. Happy to try and bring a bit of balance to the discussion. Yeah. Uh, so I'll have to, I don't know, and this one maybe when I have media owners on, I feel I can be a bit more damning of them. And, and then when I have agency people on, we're peers. And now I think I'll have to be, I'll have to tread carefully because clients <laughs> and that's the thing. But no, I won't. I won't. We'll have a chat. So first of all, when we think about technology, and I think we are lucky at the moment because this whole strange, and we were chatting off air, the world that we live in um, and the, the adjustment that we had to make to remote working and, and everything that came with that has happened with minimal disruption, I would say. And before we start slapping ourselves in the back and saying how great we are, it's because we didn't have any choice, to be honest. So, um, But I think the industry has readjusted well. I certainly have changed the way I think about it. Um, how's it been for you? How have you? Were you doing any remote working before, given you're in an EMEA role? How are you getting that balance? How, how would you work going forward? Forward. How's it been? Yeah, it's, it's exactly that point about the EMEA role. So I have um, almost 10 people in my team and any one of them is in London anyway. So going into my office for my sort of direct reports weren't, weren't there. So I spent a lot of my time on the phone anyway. And when it was a day of, of phone calls, I, I did I did work from home one or two days a week. And I think maybe the client side is, is somewhat less sort of presenteeist about sort of having to be in the office and having to be uh, at your desk, so it, it mm. depends a bit on the role, and I, th- I think that's that's a good thing, and I, I think it has been great to sort of challenge that mindset and to see more flexibility and to understand, wow, we can do lots of things at home. But um, I, yeah, I definitely don't agree with the narrative that it's all been wonderful and and mm. great. I think things are fairly inefficient. We have lots of calls that could have been quick conversations in the office. Yeah, it certainly blurs a lot into kind of. I think it's harder to have that work life balance. Yeah, I, I always think I, I'm sit recording this in a nice little spare room, nice little office. I think it might, it's very hard for some of the more junior people in our industry who like working from home means kind of like sharing a kitchen table with yeah. two or three other folks is not not quite such a, an easy thing. But I'm, I'm like many sort of disruptions, I'm glad that it sort of kicked us up the backside, but I'd happily return to a, a bit more balance where we did get into the office several yeah. days a week and we could do some things together. Yeah, yeah I agree. Because I think for me, I, I found it, I never really liked work from home and that's just because I, I did it so rarely that I just ne- I never kind of mentally adapted to it. So it was always because I had to stay home to do something else. And then when I, when I was forced to work from home, I found that exactly like you, I found that some things were better and some things were, were worse. I, one of the things I find, and I'm interested in your view in this, is that I find like there is a sense of when you're working on well, in my point of view, and you would know from your agency background, a pitch or something like that, or you've, you know, you've got to come up with strategy where it, it's good to have people around that human contact, that physical interaction, those short um, kind of bounce this idea off you type of scenarios where you don't really want to ring somebody and, you know, you ring them, you can't get them, you schedule a team's call, then you feel you have to drag that out for half an hour. Um, there's very few yeah. five minute team's calls. So how do you find any process of creativity in this new working environment, working with your teams, if you have to do anything innovative or creative? You lose that spontaneity, which I think is an important part of the creative process and kind of bumping into a colleague who's, you know, what well, agency started work on a completely different piece of business or something completely different, but just wants your perspective. You know, you don't really get that when, when you know, to have a, it's so formal having to have kind of a, mm. even if you try and put in a short call. And I, I think, yeah, like workshops and big planning sessions are where the working from home bit is, is really stretched, like trying to have a, 
have a workshop with lots of different people inputting when you're, you know, all on a phone and it's trying to speak on top of each other is is quite hard. Though I've seen it work to some extent. Like, you know, if you use some of the chat functionality, mm. you have it so, you know, people raise their hand. Actually, the chat functionality can be quite good because it means some of the kind of quieter people in the room still get to have their say. Mm. But yeah, I, I, I definitely think when this calms down a little bit, you know, it, we, we will want to get back together and we want to have some of those planning yeah. sessions, briefing sessions. Definitely, I can imagine pitching and kind of stuff must be very hard to, mm. to put those different people together remotely. Yeah, yeah, it's hard and it's hard for, again, it's hard for everybody. So, you know, not, I'm not complaining about it. I think one of the things I found is that certainly meeting etiquette has has improved when things are online because rarely like usually if you're on a call at nine you're there or 10 you're there so you're not getting like even when you've got a hundred people you can't say you're stuck in traffic can you yeah and you can't just and this kind of disregard for time starts a meeting stuff like that so definitely and and there's less interruptions so um but yeah but still the clunky i think yeah we're getting better at our meeting etiquette so that that's a good thing as I said, we've talked about a lot of issues and specific to the industry and, and it is mostly from the media or agency perspective. And I know offer this up free. So, you know, it, you used to work in Cara. So I, I, I was aware of you beforehand, but you jumped to the dark side and you've gone client side now. So I'd love to get your perspective on things primarily as a client, but also given that you had an agency background. Um, one of the things we chatted about is that it's our human condition. We tend to only see things from our side of the table um, and rarely do we actually look at it from a client side of things. So we tend to think about, oh, you know, they don't understand us. The client doesn't understand our pain points. The client doesn't understand, they're not getting my strategy. They're not understanding what I'm trying to tell them is right. And I'm sure the clients then think the agencies can only see it from their kind of discipline. So when you think about other perspectives, and I'd love your view on this. So a few things I want to talk about. Sometimes it feels like we're talking different languages, clients and agencies, but what are the big issues facing clients today in marketing? It's well-worn path talking about the agencies. So what are those big issues for a client? It's a big, it's a big question. I have, I've definitely flip flopped a bit between the two. And actually, why well, I started off client side, my, you know, for, for quite a few years, and I have a habit of working with, com- uh, with companies that, that have a big presence in Ireland as well. I, I worked for Cadbury's for a good while, mm. um, Cara, and then when I left Cara, I went to work at Diageo at Guinness, of course. So there's a sort of <laughs> some, something calling me back there. But it's a tough question, you know, what are the, what are the big issues facing clients? And there's probably two to answer that as one that kind of all the issues that existed before COVID and now is a whole new bucket load of them. Mm. Uh, you know, in, in simplest terms, the, sort of, the whole world has become obsessed with growth and how you grow. And if you're in a market like, you know, Ireland or the UK where it's quite mature, it's quite saturated, you often don't see big growth for kind of big established consumer goods brands. And there's therefore a lot of pressure on, on, on what we do and, and how we change that. I mean, of course, COVID has kind of put everything, everything we thought we had planned and everything we thought we had under our hats uh, under a kind of a, a new perspective, and it's definitely thrown new challenges at us. I think, in particular, um, around like the e-commerce space. I mean, that's something that you know clients have been talking about for, for a good decade now, but it's you know suddenly becoming more and more real as you know people are literally forced to, to shop online. How do we face that? And I think when you sort of when you think about the sort of the agency space, there is or just or just marketing in general. There's a lot of confusion on the client side. I think you know there's this sort of general sense that marketing and, and media in particular is just getting more and more complicated, that we have more channels and more, you know, three-letter acronyms that no mm. one understands. And there is some truth in that, but there's also uh, truth that, you know, it, sh- it shouldn't be getting more complicated. There should, you know, some of that technology exists to make things. Mm. Um, and I think we have, you know, there's a lot of sim- simplification that needs to be done. I think when we talk about what, how it works with the agency, having worked both sides, I think one of the biggest watchouts is that that sort of slight gap in miscommunication creates a lot of work that, mm. you know, doesn't need to be there like 
I, I try and be responsible for this. I'm sure my agency will tell me otherwise. As a client, if you ask a fairly casual question, that can sometimes turn into like this sort of this huge big ask on the other side. Mm. And a couple of meetings later, someone presents back this big piece of work they've done. And you were like, oh, OK, <laughs> I, I only meant that as a passing question. Um, yeah. I think there's, you know, still certainly breakdowns with, with how we work together and that we could do better. Yeah, I, I I get that. Sometimes one of those questions is like, how much should I spend on this? What's the right budget level? Which is a completely just throwaway question. But then, well, first of all, it's it's not an unfair question to ask. But then the frantic response, or I don't know, how do we model this? Or what do you do? Is quite often a lot of work in it, even if it's a, a throwaway question. Um, the agency. That, that's a really good example. It's the, it's the eternal question. I hear, I've heard it in lots of visits. Are we spending enough? Yeah. And it seems like a simple question, which you know your media agency should be able to to answer. But the word like enough hides a lot of nuance in it doesn't it like mm. is it and are we spending enough to you know maximize our growth opportunity maximize mm. our profit to outspend our competitors you know it's yeah things things aren't simple i I, um, I always think when you're asking the media agency um it's probably a good chance they're going to come back and go no you're not spending enough um that's just because that's what yeah. our job <laughs> is to spend the money so you have to think about invested interest as well in terms of the answer do do i need to say it'd be rare that your media agent's gonna go i think you're spending way too much <laughs> half your budget is fine i have very occasionally seen that but yes most modeling does point to the fact that you could spend more and it probably is true I, there aren't many brands that are spending like mm. the absolute saturation that they could do before everyone started getting annoyed at seeing their ads everywhere. Yeah, it is. Like, it's fine. And I was amazed when when Google talked to our clients directly and somewhere in the presentation, there's a recommendation saying, you could spend a bit more with us. Uh, you haven't maxed out. And I go, <laughs> it's typical. Um, the agency landscape is quite complicated. The ecosystem, there's lots of different agency partners. And with the, the different specialisms and quite often a, a, a large client like yourself would have a media agency record. They might have a digital agency, maybe a social agency, a content agency, a creative agency, PR. How complicated from a client side or how difficult is that to work with and to manage? Um, what do you want from your agencies? How, how do you want them to work together? And what do you think agencies could be doing better now? Because I'm sure everyone listening is in a multi-vendor relationship with clients to some degree. Yeah, I mean, I, I worked at Dentsu for a few years. I'm not sure I quite worked out what all the agencies in the group did. We still haven't. Then. We still haven't figured it out. <laughs> it's certainly, and, and there's good reasons for that specialism, and there are, you know, there, you know, there are reasons for sort of full service media agency, and there are reasons for sort of very specific technical ones. I think what, what clients ultimately want is, is is simplicity, and we we bring on some of that complexity for ourselves by creating silos and by working with different agencies. And so the the biggest answer is how do those agencies bring some of those those silos back together. And actually from a, from a client side, we can, you know, clients can be particularly bad at having projects that work very different in mm. different silos. Like the person who's doing the brand marketing and the person who's doing the performance and e-commerce marketing can be completely different teams and completely different structures. And the person who's mm. creating the content can be someone completely different. So we, ha- we have that complexity on, on both sides. Um, but I think we do often, rightly or wrongly, look to the agencies to try and to break down some of that complexity and to try mm. and have conversations that, you know, travel and move between those different parties. And certainly where, where you're working multiple agencies, you know, the best examples of that have always been where there's like, you know, really good cross-agency collaboration where, you know, the media agency and the creative agency are, are talking together and mm. bringing together those conversations. I mean, there's, there's the beginnings of a move, I think, to try and bring more creative and media mm. decisions back together, like, like old school agencies. And I think, that's not always the right answer, but some certainly you need those agencies to work together because otherwise we end up in these terrible situations with kind of, you know, the creative yeah. doing one thing and the digital doing another. 
And I think, I mean, I suppose I could have mentioned it as a big challenge. I think data is this kind of buzzword. Mm. Watch out. You know, everyone's telling us we need to do more with data and everyone wants to kind of own and have a, have a role in that data. I think as an industry over the next sort of 18 months or so, trying to get our head around really how do we positively approach data and, and with a complex ecosystem of different agencies who you might want to be using data in different ways, how do you bring all that together? I think mm. as well as ways of working, that's quite a practical question about how do we, how on earth do we make that work, especially when you can't just be passing data around between <laughs> different organizations. Yeah. yeah. And I think not unlike yourself, I've worked with lots of clients in lots of different ways and some have this kind of what we call like the, the hunger games approach to the budget and they get all the agency partners in and say, there's a budget now go off and fight with it. It's like, it looks grand to the client, but it's very tricky underneath. Um, yeah. Expanding on this kind of multi-partnership and multi-vendor um, relationship, look, we know that some client-to-agency relationships are great, others are more, you know, they see the agency as a, a commodity or a provision of service. Um, but I think you'd probably agree the best work is done when there's a relationship between both parties. And I'm not just saying this because it's you on the call, but one of my favorite clients was GSK and it was a guy you might have known, Andy Bolden was was my client. Yeah. yeah. And he he always felt like, and James Taylor in Diageo was the same, he always felt like he was an agency kind of representative in in the client um so he was he was great brilliant guy to work with so i want to get your opinion on this race to the bottom in terms of media pricing again i'll, I'll sound like the typical agency guy giving out going procurement have have driven how they've disintermediated the relationship and they've really forced a wedge between what was a relationship between client and agency and they've driven prices down so is there a danger and the client has a responsibility on the supply chain of inventory so is there a danger that when procurement and price 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 drives everything that we are inadvertently unintentionally creating bad supply chain of inventory now i'm not blaming clients for the for the race to the bottom of pricing but everybody's part of the ecosystem what's your view on that you have to you have to blame clients for everything because ultimately we're at the, the top of the food chain and we're the ones are, are asking and pushing to make things happen you made a point a second ago that i think is, is really really important that um i think the, the role of a kind of a client side media leader a part of that role is to be a representative of your media agency within the business and to be a champion of that. And I, I truly believe that I, you know, very much think of, we work with publicists at GSK, I very much think of that as a big extension of my team that I, you know, yes, we have challenging conversations and we, um, you know, there are, there are times when you, you have to challenge them. Mm. But, you know, in front of my business, in front of senior stakeholders, I, I usually do my absolute best to kind of champion and support them and back them up because, you know, when they succeed, we succeed, and and you know, from my time in agency, I've, I don't think I've ever seen an agency team that's better motivated by you know being whipped and told off mm. than one that's motivated by being kind of encouraged and in, inspired. So I think that's that's a you know a huge part of having a good healthy relationship. And there are kind of seasons to that, and there's probably negotiation and review time, and mm. you know there, there are times when you, you can't just be buddy buddy. But there you know there are certain times when I think it's it's very good that if you're you know friendly and actually advocating for your agency as, as part of your team. And I think, yeah, in terms of the the impact clients then have on the sort of the media supply chain and, and pricing, I, I think, you know, without wanting to sort of accept full complicity, it, it certainly is a, a big issue that clients have pushed for many, many years for mm. things to get cheaper, mm. for, you know, for more transparency, for cheaper pricing, for, you know, we want, we always want something that's better. Um, and agencies have somehow miraculously largely managed to keep up with those challenges. But of course, there are costs to that. Mm. Some of those costs are, you know, you're having a much, have to have a much leaner team. You end up with, you know, yes, you pay less, but you get less. I mean, in, in the media side, yes, certainly if you're not careful, a really big push around pricing and efficiency 
you know, sometimes the only way of delivering that is to sort of reduce mm. quality and, um, you know, especially in the digital space, I think the kind of, you know, the introduction of programmatic buying and things almost designed basically to help you sniff out the sort of the cheapest mm. inventory to, to drive down costs. Mm. Of course, there are, there are reasons for doing that, but it's also, you know, a fairly slippery slope towards, yes, it looks really cheap and looks like, you know, we've got great media deal, but, you know, where, where on earth am I appearing and are you actually getting better value or are you just paying less for something that's that's worth less? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I mean, I think many clients understand that and try and ask more mature questions, but it's still hard to avoid the, however mature your mindset, it's hard to avoid the point when someone puts in a a Mm. contract or in a sort of a review meeting, like, you know, by the way, you've got a target to hit this sort of efficiency or something. And all of a sudden comes the only thing that people can, can work to. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a fair point, and it's. Uh, I mean, I think it is what it is, and the media agencies probably haven't done a good enough job to promote their value and, and move it away from just a commoditized business to step away from that. I mean, there's there's a debate in market. I mean, it's always been debate, but there has a debate that marketing has become a little bit risk averse. It doesn't create the same cultural impact as it used to, and that it's losing definitely losing a seat at the top table in terms of the ability to go toe to toe with the CFO. Marketing has lost. It's it, the finance people have risen to the top of the businesses, and rarely the marketing people these days and we talked about this before uh, you know when we talked about budget a few minutes ago and we said like it's not an unreasonable question that a client would say to you how much is enough is the right to launch insert product here into insert market here and yet quite often the agencies struggle to provide that level of comfort to the CFO so again you're kind of a, a shock absorber between the agency and the CFO to a degree but I think your job is probably convincing the CFO who looks at advertising and marketing as a cost to actually invest in that. So how internally within GSK or, or any client side, how do you convince your CFO to buy into what, what the agent or to take a risk or to invest in marketing? What do you do? Yeah, I, I think you know, some of that comes back to that challenge I mentioned at the start, which is that you know, growth is seen as the real sort of necessity. And unfortunately, in many developed markets, it's, it's hard to drive big radical growth and so your your media does end up looking like a cost because you're you know you're spending lots of money advertising and your market share is kind of edging slightly forward. It's hard, you know, it's very rare to find a sort of a developed brand that's you know mm. radical market share growth. And and therefore you know it it doesn't look like a great equation. It, and I work across a region. I I see those exact conversations where you know we have you know markets in the Middle East and Africa where we're much less mature. The market mm. itself is less mature. It's growing. It's very obvious that the marketing is, is is a growth driver, and that you know we should invest more, and that you know in doing so we're seeing great results. I think yeah, it gets, it gets trickier in in those more developed markets. I think I've I've always seen um, working in a regional role. Ireland is an interesting one because you know certainly Cabris, Diageo, it, it was always a market that was a bit more willing to take risks mm. because it kind of it flew slightly under the radar yeah. of some of those regional stakeholders. It, it wasn't the kind of you know top five markets that got yeah. grilled by the central CFO so they could be a bit more creative and, and take a bit more risks but you know I'm sure that's not always the case yeah and it, it does boil down to that you know if you just so much pressure on you know driving growth or at least staying stable the kind of the classic conundrum that you can't really get told off for you know doing a bit of basic TV and keeping things samey whereas if you you know try something really radically different you could be and I think the answer is often that you know it's it's finding the middle ground, isn't it? And I, you know, mm. I think I usually say yes to doing innovation and yes to trying new things. But of course, you don't throw away everything else that you were doing beforehand. You have to, you know, have have enough of the basic building blocks and enough of the stuff that you know that works to, mm. to be confident that you've got a good plan. And then you can, you know, mess around with some of the more interesting mm. bits that hopefully become part of that future plan. 
Yeah. But the, the CFO is a tough one. I think one of the, the biggest things on that is to do with credible language. And we have a and marketing by default is a bit intangible because you don't want to reduce marketing just down to like how many sales did mm. we drive this quarter because you're also building a brand and building a long term value. And, you know, at the end of the day, the only reason we have a CFO is because we've successfully built very, yeah. you know, Panadol and big brands that people are willing to pay a premium for. But uh, Diageo did a particularly good job. I think they have a, a system they talk about called Catalyst which really armed a lot of their marketers with kind of econometric data and really that, you know, data that the finance team bought into so that when you were having a conversation with them about how much you were spending and what you should be doing, you came armed to the table with kind of right. that they saw as, as valid and true and, and credible. And I'm, yeah, I have to say we're, we're, you know, following along that path and trying to work more closely with our finance team so that we talk to them in the good times as well as the bad times. Mm. Yeah, I, I loved, and I love the idea of, uh, this came up a couple of weeks ago about Brand Ireland, maybe Enterprise Ireland, positioning Ireland as a test hub, a test market too, because it's relatively representative of Europe. We're English-speaking language. We're not, you know, there's nuances here and there, but it's a great place. Of course, I would say that, but I definitely think it's a, it's <laughs> a, lot, a, it's, of big, a lot of big tech companies based yeah, there as well. And yeah, I think it's a great place. We should we should be, that's what we should be doing within, that should be fighting that corner. That Brand Ireland should be the, the real life kind of, you know, test and learn market, but that's above my pay grade to be doing that. Um <laughs> On innovation for a minute, there is, a, and you rightly said that, there's a tension between, you don't want to throw out every established thing and like TV, for example, just to be in vogue and to try and to be a digital only or whatever, you know, we've all gone and followed these mantras. So what's your view on innovation? Jerry, Day, are you a client that likes to try new things? Are you easily convinced to try new things? What does it take to convince Jerry Dakin to take a chance or a leap of faith? Like, do you buy into these 70 20 10 frameworks or what would i have to do if i was to pitch you an idea and you weren't sure about it how easy are you to convince on innovation yeah i, I do i do broadly buy into that kind of 70 20 10 thing and in fact we do a a monthly thing where we ask our agency to bring us um in most of our markets kind of three slightly curveball ideas every month you know they're usually just sort of one slide ideas they don't need to be kind of completely worked up or anything that can, you know that can be simple things like oh let's try a snapchat lens this month or it could be something a bit more radical let's you know let's go and do some crazy sort of stunt or something and i i think you know we we try and persuade our marketers to hear those out and to do some of those and we have consistently been doing a number of those innovations often they're small parts of the budget but they can kind of punch above their weight for me in all kind of digital innovation and new things i'm quite a passionate sort of believer in like marketing theory and marketing science and you know the fact that, you know that ultimately media's job is to to reach a lot of people and to drive mm-hmm. penetration and to, you know drive mental availability and things mm-hmm. so the easiest way to convince me is to try and you know show how you know this new technology this new innovation is going to play by those rules and and make that happen and i'm i get a little bit skeptical about you know new technologies and new opportunities that sort of suggest they completely break that model and like you know mm. don't worry about everything we knew before we've got this new technology that lets your consumers have this kind of one-on-one conversation with mm. you and it's going to completely change everything mm. i get a bit skeptical but you know a, a really new powerful way of a new platform like tiktok emerges and it's just yeah. you know, a really great way of of reaching a different group of consumers in a fun and engaging way you know yeah. absolutely should be testing that out and seeing what works yeah and because tiktok's a great example because you know, look it's not as developed as the other social platforms but that's why you want to get in and try things but they're come you know there's targeting issues user issues there's bullying issues there's all the things that come with anything you try but you have to be prepared to 
I think consumers are unforgiving. Like, I mean, the difference, they see if you're on a platform, you're not going to be tarnished with, oh my God, there's some irresponsible behavior on that platform. So they can separate the client and the advertiser from some of the content and the behaviors. But yeah, I think it's, um, I'm not, because I'm not sure whether the agencies are great at selling that. So I just wanted your perspective on that. I think advertisers definitely have a responsibility for the content on their platform. I think, you know, we as advertisers, and, you know, we've, we've seen this consistently over the last few years, have to take a stand where we see, like, you know, where, where there is bad content and we, you know, we are a big mm. funder of that ecosystem. And so it's part of our role to absolutely put pressure on those companies and mm. to make sure that as they're building ads products and, and products, they are thinking about the welfare yeah. of their consumers and society and, and stuff, you know, yeah. yeah. At the same time, you, you can get to the point of being too risk averse and, you know, any media that exists carries both good positive messages and also, you know, TV yeah. shows have horrific things in them and, you know, terrible mm. storylines that you wouldn't necessarily want to associate your brand with. Yeah, I, I think consumers do broadly understand the difference between the content and the advertising around it. Yeah, I think it's interesting you say that because that conversation doesn't happen that much anymore. There used to be a lot of, like you get a lot of trouble from a client about, my God, my newspaper ad was beside a story about X or my advert and TV show was in this show and they were talking about this. that doesn't happen anymore because now we've got so many other things to complain and give out about that, you know, <laughs> it's just and it's all digital. So that's just the way it goes. Um, but on on that point about Block list. I read it. I read an article you wrote a while ago, and it was um, you're talking about you urge marketers and agencies to stop blocking the best parts of the internet, and how that were. I think you were in the article you're talking about where we've created block lists, and we're we're doing it like without much thought. It's doing blindly online, and it's an overly blunt instrument. I think is how you put it. That's lazy being applied. So, can you expand on that a little bit for? Because I read it, but for people listening, just give me the, the gist of it. Yeah, I, I wear many sort of voluntary hats, but a couple of things I get involved with are something called the Conscious Advertising Network and then also the WFA's Global Alliance for Responsible Media, which is big names, but they're all organizations basically pushing this point that advertisers fund the internet and we need to make sure we're funding the right stuff. And I think there has been a bit of a journey over the last, last four or five years ago. You know, obviously, you know, there were front pages of newspapers about four or five years ago with, with advertisers discovering they were accidentally funding terrorism or, you know, horrific content and quite rightly advertisers pulled the plug on channels and withdrew the drawbridge and, and one of the ways that we've responded to that quite rightly um is to these kind of keyword blocking lists and sometimes also you know site lists where we choose where we will appear and i, I think that's an important part of it you know we, we do need to make sure we're blocking really really dangerous and, and bad parts of the internet and, and trying to, to stop hate yeah. speech getting funded stop those bad actors getting funded mm -hmm. What we did see was that, you know, in the kind of the rush to do that, brands often ended up with keyword blocking lists. They could have tens of thousands of words on. So frankly, you, you lose all real context of yeah. what those words are. No one, no one reads that whole list. And there were a few whistleblowers, might we say, from the sort of the media side who, who pointed out, I think Vice was one of the first ones. They said, look, we've seen that like advertisers have put words like Muslim, lesbian, right. like really broad, generic keywords. Without the context. Yeah. yeah. And of, and of course, there have been some yeah. Muslim terrorists. There have also been lots of very fantastic stories written about the Muslim community that your brand would love to be part of and, mm. and we should fund. And the, the risk is if you don't have that nuance and that context that we, we defund. And Vice's point was basically, it's becoming very hard for the editorial team to justify writing positive stories about minority groups if the advertisers yeah. are just going to run a mile. So yeah. absolutely put in place some of those blockings, hmm. but do so in a, in a nuanced way and, and work with your agency to make sure you're you're really avoiding the bad stuff. And, and if anything, you could deliberately fund the good stuff. There yeah. are you know tools or networks that can help you make sure you are funding journalism, 
quality content, mm. diverse voices and things. So it's it's getting that balance right. Yeah, I never thought about it from the again, it's about like life is about looking at everything from a different from the other person's perspective. I never thought about it from like it like inadvertently then it's it's stopping funding of positive stories around these things. Because no word is well, very few words are good or bad without the context of the surrounding words and the article they're in. So Yeah, I remember at Diageo we had um Frozen was on the block list because you know Disney's frozen. It's not mm. quite rightly an alcohol brand. Doesn't want to need, need to be there near there. But as an alcohol brand, they also talked a lot about frozen drinks and mm. frozen. So it's it's finding that new one. And we saw in some of the early stages of COVID, for instance, we saw there were some classic examples like the front page of the Wall Street Journal and all these like premium inventory that was just you know had yeah. had ad blockers removing the adverts because of course the word COVID was everywhere, yeah. and advertisers added it to their list because you know well it's not it's obviously yeah. not a good thing, mm. but it's a slightly made up stat, but like 90% of articles written these yeah. days mention COVID in, in some way. So you have to go much beyond just that kind of headline word to, yeah. you know, get, avoid, I don't know, avoid death toll and terrorism, mm. but don't avoid bid. And I guess that's a technology thing where, you know, I'm sure we have that technology exists. Um, and one of the things you, you mentioned there, and you've talked a lot about this is diversity and inclusivity. And I've covered that to a degree on the podcast. So I just want to touch on a couple of things. The ad industry talks about diversity a lot, it, but it's kind of a narrow field because I don't think it's really that diverse. Well, certainly not in Ireland anyway. It's not that diverse from a social economic perspective and it's not diverse at all really in terms of its age profile. So I read a tweet a couple of weeks ago saying that in terms of creativity, the 50 pluses are creative enough to dominate the Pulitzers, the Nobels, the Golden Globes, the Oscars, but they're not creative enough to write banner ads if you look at it you know, an agency point of view. So what do you think about that? Why do you think this is the case? Why do you think that? Do you think we do enough? Do you think that the agencies value experience and, and age to the same to the rate that they should? And why does Adland feel like no country for old men when we think about diversity? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge question. There, we definitely don't do enough. As, as Andrew, we've talked about it a bit for the last few years, but certainly this year with. Yes, part of COVID, certainly with sort of the Black Lives Matter movement in the US and, and some of that, it really has landed at the top of people's agendas. I think we are making more concrete steps to deal with it, but it's quite a hard thing to deal with. You have, you have to sort of, the whole phase is you have, you have to make sure that the right people are trying to and are able to join the industry in the first place. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of challenges there in terms of where we reach out to. As a client side, I think we can be quite guilty of, you know, really looking for people with, you know, very high level degrees from sort of the best universities in the countries and things. You don't really need that to mm. do much. You want switched on people, but they don't necessarily come through that that yeah. path. There's, there's, you know, the fact that the industry doesn't look that diverse, doesn't feel that diverse, which in itself puts people off. There's the fact that people don't even know it exists as an industry. Mm. How do you tackle that? So getting people in is a challenge. Then, you know, keeping them engaged and treating them fairly and making them believe that they can and can and do have their progression through the industry. And certainly, I think you get, you get to the top of the industry and you, you really see how tough that is. I think, you know, no country for old men. I mean, no, com no country for old women. Where You know, yeah. women drop out of our industry at an, an alarming rate. Of course, some, some of that is to do with kind of societal choice and mm. wanting to look after kids and things. But a lot of it is that, you know, they just they find it an industry where they can't get to the, the top or where it's too much of a battle against the men and they <laughs> choose to look elsewhere and move to other things. I think that's a huge, huge loss to our industry. Mm. There are, you know, there are some fundamental issues. I think with, with COVID, one of the things we've seen is, you know, agencies have had to make cutbacks. And, and unfortunately, that means getting rid of people. And often it is the more senior people that go because you, you almost get too senior your price tag gets too high yeah. and then kind of hard to justify you but 
other industries do seem to manage with that challenge. And there is some, there's something slightly strange in marketing about how we just we don't give uh, experience like yeah. what it deserves. Like if we were lawyers or doctors, you know, someone with 30 mm. years experience would be like the the absolute bee's knees and you'd be falling over for them. Mm. And marketing, we're, you know, we have a tendency to think, oh, you know, this person's got five years experience, but they, you know, they ran their own Snapchat for a while. So they're, yeah. they're, they're it, there's no, there's no easy fix, but I think it's important that people are talking about it. And, you know, here, here we are two you know, white men talking about it, but I think it's, it's important that everyone thinks about it mm. and, and looks for the sort of some of the small, cause there are small things we can all do. And some of it is even like in meetings, you know, if you notice that, you know, some of the minorities within the meeting can be women, can be ethnic minorities, can be older people just aren't speaking or, you know, don't get their points across. Mm. What, what could you do to kind of push the people forwards around you? But yeah, mm. it's a big, big challenge. Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the things that we can all do, because I think you can, you're, you're right. You can be, you can go down and rabbit hole and you can be in danger of throwing your arms up in the air and saying, this is a big societal problem and I can't do anything about it. But we can all model by our own behavior and, and look for those. It's a great point about looking, look, being conscious of your own conscious bias or conscious of yeah. the minority voices, not for whatever reason, not being heard as often and try and encourage that. So I think that's a great point. Um, on- certainly, certainly like business leaders, I think the unconscious bias is a great phase and sort of mapping through your business processes where some of that unconscious bias might exist in mm. recruitment, in uh, retention, in promotion. You know, where, where might it be that for whatever reason you're, you're accidentally being a bit biased and, you know, to different... And I think actually the, the socioeconomic, I think you mentioned, that's a really big one that, you know, as industry, we're talking a lot about gender and race and ethnicity but we have yeah we have a terrible social economic yeah. we really need to encourage a different group of people and part of that is what are the actual practical barriers like if to join in the marketing industry you have to be able to do like a one-year internship without mm. being paid living with your family yeah. to pay for you that cuts out you know a yeah. huge sector of the business so how do, how do we change that exactly and it is a big problem because i see like the particularly because it's such a young and a specific social demographic in the planning side of things before people get on to be kind of group heads of yeah and the, the danger is that group thing that you think that the things that you do and the things that you and your friends do everyone else does so you have this thing about like not everybody is going out and having you know spending 550 on an organic latte and getting the latest iPhone like and you, but that's just what happens and it's not a conscious thing it is an unconscious thing and um, that that just happens with people but I think it's trying to see because agencies are weird thing the social demographic thing I, I think is hard and it's a barrier to try and get into the industry I don't know how somebody from a disadvantaged background would go about even getting into the industry just don't know how that would happen one of the things you mentioned there was about brands getting involved with um causes or purpose-led campaigns and we could we could spend an hour talking about this but just I want to get your views on that there is a fine line between a brand getting involved in a cause or championing a cause with respect and there's a big difference between that or just jumping on a bandwagon and tailgating on culture to sell a bit more stuff because I think it's I don't think it's a serious issue these things particularly Black Lives Matter and things like that where do you stand on that? I'm a skeptic about the kind of the absolute like extremes of purpose-based marketing and this idea that you know a consumer walking around a supermarket is going to pick up certain tins because they know that, you know, that one stands for women's rights or something. But I think that's, you know, that, that is a real marketing bubble view. Mm. If, we, if we think consumers genuinely have the time to, mm. to look into the purposes of the brands around them. That doesn't mean I don't think it's a good and important thing for brands to move towards that space. There's kind of a spectrum of, of doing the right thing and, and I guess being more representative. And I think, you know, historically brands have, have played at the opposite end of that, which is we tend to have slightly stereotypical adverts. We tend to show housewives cleaning the homes mm. and, you know, 
uh, we tend to not well represent minorities in, mm. in our adverts. And so there's every brand can start moving along that spectrum and sort of sense check the content it's making and the adverts it's making, you know, are we, are we reinforcing stereotypes or actually are we positively representing the actual consumers that we mm. sell to who, who are a diverse bunch? So I think, you know, everyone moves along that step. I mean, I think, you know, it is, you know, I, I think there is a role for brands to, you know, to especially to support their colleagues, to support their consumers around things like pride, Black Lives Matter. The reality is even from those communities, you'll hear different feedback. And some people think, you know, putting a, a rainbow logo on your pack is an outrageous commercialism. I, I think you know, that kind of casual representation really helps hmm. normalize and, and, and raise issues and, and break things down. But yeah, you have to be careful if you go really into the kind of mm. the truly worthy end of it. If you're if you're going to make an advert that's very kind of purposeful and mm. worthy, and you know, we're wonderful and we're supporting minorities and things, I think you you do want to start making sure your your house is in line yeah. That, yeah. That, you, that you are living by those words that you have good policies internally or you know in your stores or whatever. Mm. And I I think although I don't think brands, I don't think consumers you know go around looking for the most purposeful brand. I think there are opportunities there to be more relevant to be more to be more emotional to yeah. have more you know, cut through by telling more emotional stories and i think consumers you know absolutely with the science shows us that we that they do notice that and i think playing authentically in purpose in a way that you know isn't over stretching your brand i mm. mean I, there's a big stretch isn't there when you're like a chocolate bar and you're yeah. going to sa- save the world but yeah. i think you can you can find happy happy middle ground where it makes sense but yeah I I agree. I, I think there's there's a big difference. So like purpose is brilliant and it's brilliant if a company has purpose and the CEO buys into that. The problem I have sometimes is purpose marketing, where purpose marketing yeah. is come up with by the marketing department and it's attaching to causes because it's kind of shortcutting that, oh, this audience buy into brands that have purpose. What will we stand for? But it's not really, it's not a proper purpose. I, the marketing bit of purpose marketing is a bit that I often have a problem with. Um, and I think it's it's too shallow and it's, it's you know, it seems to be a pillar on every brief now. So um, we... Yeah, I think, I mean, I mean, Unilever is a good example of a company that talks a lot about purpose, but I'm, I'm skeptical sometimes. But in fairness, they do seem to put their money where their mouth mm. is. And if you take an example like Ben & Jerry's, which I know is mm. only, which they run slightly separately, but that, that's a really good example of, I mean, that's a company that's come out and been very bold in comms it puts yeah. out around. Black Lives Matter and voting and things. But that's not just a sort of whimsical marketing campaign on the top of nothing else, is it? That's no. built on a business that right from the ground yeah, up exactly. has put those causes at its heart that mm. cares about environmental issues and things. And then it's a bit more palatable. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you believe <laughs> it from them because they they they've a right to do it. I, I think the one I talked about before was I think like when State Street came out and, and started saying how great they are with that fearless girl statue yeah. and you know, and it just annoyed me because well, I took it at face value at the time, but it won multiple oh, awards yeah. and they were and how great they are. And it turns out that, oh, actually, you know what, you've you've settled for millions out of court because you were paying women and minorities significantly less than their male counterparts. So if you're gonna stand and collect all the awards, expect some blowback. I'll just chat about you for a minute. What's the big difference between the agency side and the client side? So quite a lot of people in agencies listening might be considering going client side, particularly because the, the media side of things sounds like it's, it's kind of a race to the bottom to a degree. What's the big difference and how easy was it to adjust? I like both. In a way, the, there's, I think there's a bigger difference between being in a good team than a bad than there is being on either side. So you can be in a great client, a great agency team that is kind of treated as an extension of the client team and you have a really great working relationship and it actually then... Some of those roles could appear on either side of the fence and it's not the crazy divide we like to imagine. And then you get slightly more negative relationships where there's a real chasm there and the agency mm. is really treated as kind of 
a far doer of things and is you know shouted at and and and, and told told what to do. I, the agency, I mean, I, I've enjoyed both. The agency brings a lot of really exciting things. You work with a lot more people who who do and talk about media. You get exposure to other brands. Mm. You know, it's a, it's a much richer world of media. When when you're client side, you you tend to become more of an island because. Mm. There's likely only well a very small number of client side media people in most companies. So you're not you're not surrounded by people who know about media. Your job is always persuading other people to understand media. And on, on both sides, you get politics. But I think on on the client side, a much greater part of your job is spent negotiating politics. And and to an extent, you therefore get to do less of the kind of the pure pure media project product and strategic thinking and planning and stuff. You mm. you become sort of an approver. But there are you know. Pros and cons of both, and and certainly you get good teams and good organisations on mm. both sides. I think in some ways we exaggerate that that gap. The difference. When, when I'm recruiting for roles, I look very casually across client and agent and brand side experience because yeah. I think it's you know being in media is a bigger difference versus being on what side of that fence you are. Mm. Do you have any new perspective now that you've gone client side? So what I mean, but if you look back, if you look back at your agency career, are there things if you met? Jerry Dakin working in Cara now, you you jumped in a in time travel machine. Is there any, given your experience now, and you can see you've seen it from the client side, obviously, is there any advice? What advice would you give Jerry Dake, the agency Jerry Dakin now? Is there something you wish you wish you'd known then that you know now? Yeah, I think I mean one thing I talked about earlier was the point about really interrogating things your client says and really understanding what, what they want from you and whether they whether they're trying to kick off a, a big process or whether they really just want a thought starter answer I think what agencies and I you know I was guilty of it when I was there have a tendency to do is kind of give it like boiling the ocean to give this completely thorough answer you know see mm. attach the, the spreadsheet with you know 4,000 columns yeah. and stuff and the client's like well this is all really good but actually I'd like a two bullet point answer yeah. that you know <laughs> helps me helps you understand that so I and I think part of that is interrogating the client part of that is that Remembering that as an agency, your your role isn't just to to tell them everything; it's to mm. have an opinion mm. and to boil it down. And I also think it's always worth thinking about you know, what your client asks you for is almost always motivated by the people they're having to sell it into. So it's a very good question to ask, like you know, who is this actually for, and who are your stakeholders that you have to sell this into? And that helps everyone kind of frame something better. Yeah. Yeah. And I know I do it myself all the time. There is that kind of, what do I want? What do I want out of this? Do I want to give the one page answer that maybe the client is looking for? Or do I want them to see how much work I've done to get a point of view on this? And, you know, yes. and that, you know, there is a little bit of self-preservation in it that you want to go, I'm, I'm going to show all this work. I'm not doing all this work and then giving them the answer. I'm going to supply I, everything yeah. just so you can see my homework. But it what? can be frustrating because because and often you have to do the homework. Often to get to a good answer, ninety-five percent of the work mm. is you know trawling the ocean and getting lots of stats together. Mm. And I think sometimes you lose all of that value if you don't add that final five percent, which is you know we have agencies for a reason. It isn't just to pull out numbers; it's yeah. to have an opinion, to have a perspective, a point of view. Yeah, the points. Yeah, to have a point of view. Yeah, I think that's what I always say to people as well. Like it quite often, I, I love when people have a point of view and I don't care whether I agree or disagree with that <laughs> point of view. It doesn't really bother me. I just, I hate when there's people in meetings or when I ask them a question and they can't offer me a point of view on it. And I just, you know, yeah. that's all what clients want. I mean, you can say my point of view on X is this and look, I'd have to go back and do some research on it, but that's my point of view. And quite often that is enough. They just say, well, just like we want to know your point of view. What's your advice for anyone starting out? For a career in the marketing or advertising industry, what advice would you give them? 
It's a tough one. Stick with it. I think, you know, well, per, per the conversation earlier, I hope we're seeing some different people starting out in the industry. I think it's useful to, to try and reach out to senior people. I think, you know, not necessarily a formal mentor, but, you know, I think people are often flattered or intrigued to be asked for, for advice and, and to be heard. So mm. I think, you know, look for the people in your business, in your agency that you can reach out to. Consider trying different roles and different jobs. I think when you're joining advertising, you probably don't really know all the different roles that exist. Mm, no. Um, and so have a think about kind of what those different roles are. Advertising can be a bit all-consuming, so make sure you have boundaries, but you know, put your heart into it and show you're passionate about it. And I, I think it's, it's a really fantastic industry that I would encourage people to, to give a try to. Yeah. Okay, great. We are. I'm conscious I've kept you. You're a busy man and I've kept you for the guts of an hour. So <laughs> I just want to say thanks a million for joining me today. I really enjoyed that chat. And I'm going to get more clients on because I'm, I'm going to commit to you today that it won't be so much of a, a media and agency perspective, but I really enjoyed getting a client perspective, albeit somebody who was an agency person and is now a client. But thanks so much for joining me, Jerry. Thanks for having me. No problem. And I just want to say thanks to our partners in the Irish Times Media Solutions and thanks to Kira and Andrea on sound. So until two weeks time, stay safe. This is Inside Marketing, brought to you by Dentsu Aegis Network and Irish Times Media Solutions.